Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, depolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually... Um, Public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Greetings, everyone, to another odd cast featuring me, your odd man out. Thank you for taking the time to hang out with me once again. I want to thank you guys for your patience lately because I've been extremely busy and I've had a hard time getting new content out. And I have been studying like a madman and I have several shows lined up, getting all my notes together. And this week, we're going to have a little bit of a recap and what it is, I call it Freemasonry's Greatest Hits, Volume 1. I've done several shows on Freemasonry, a handful. And more than that, if you count the Shriners episode and the Illuminati episodes as well. But I'm taking clips from the Freemason episodes, the best of clips, and putting them together because I'm working on an all-new episode for Freemasonry, actually two. There's going to be one talking about masonry solely, and then there's going to be another one talking about how Kabbalah has had such an influence on Freemasonry. This has been a journey for me to learn about all these esoteric groups. Of course, masonry is the most famous, and there's a lot of other groups that are connected to masonry and also kind of based on masonry and its degrees and different things like that. And really, I've learned that you can't really understand Masonry without understanding Kabbalah. So with my studies on those we don't speak of and mystical Judaism, I've come to understand Kabbalah a lot more, and still there's a lot that I don't understand. But it's helped me to really view Masonry in its correct light. Light. No pun intended, right? So I think this episode will be a good starter for the other episodes, because I started doing shows on masonry, I want to say maybe my 22nd 
25th episode, I think, was my first one on masonry. And even before that, I had mentioned masonry several times on shows. So there's a lot of you who haven't even listened to those old shows, and this information is going to be completely new to you. So I hope you enjoy it, and I will be bringing you again the new episode on masonry next week. Actually, I'm not sure if I'll do that one or the Kabbalah in Masonry episode. It'll just depend on how I get my notes together. But I want to thank you guys again for having the patience. And without any further ado, let's get right into the show. Kaz able to make some connections here. He really goes into the New Age movement and names names and really shows the connection between some of these New Agers and Freemasonry. Uh, one thing, though, I thought was very interesting that I didn't realize, he pointed out that they have, uh, the Scottish Rite has a magazine called the Scottish Rite Journal, but for decades it was called the New Age Magazine, and they changed it when the New Age started getting some flack, some heat back in, I think, the 80s. So, anyway, he makes the connection here. He says, um, As I have not previously been aware of any connections between the New Age movement and Freemasonry, I began what turned out to be several months of research on the topic. I realized the possibility of the magazine's name just being a coincidence, in which that case would be no link between the two. But statements appearing in a Lucius Trust publication entitled 30 Years' Work would prove to the contrary. 30 Years' Work summarized the books written by Alice Bailey, the former head of a Theosophical Society and the founder of Lucius Trust and the Arcane Schools. According to this publication, Alice Bailey received frequent instructions on Freemasonry through her spirit guide, Dijual Kool, and referred to him as the Tibetan master. So this guy was giving her ideas for books, supposedly. Uh, he was, you know, basically, it's, I guess it's called automatic writing, and so he was giving her the words or whatever to write her uh, occult books. The books written by Alice Bailey with the Tibetan contain many references to the Masonic craft, to its origins, and to the course of its history over the centuries, and to the significant part of a revitalized and re-spiritualized masonry that can play and will play in the future in carrying out the light and the energy of the mystery teachings through the Aquarian era. Alice Bailey offers a more revealing personal account of Freemasonry, in her book, Externalization of the Hierarchy, on page 511, she writes this, The Masonic movement, when it can be divorced from politics and social ends and from its present paralyzing condition of inertia, will meet the need of those who can and should wield power. And in the custodian of the law, it is the home of the mysteries and the seat of the initiation. It holds in its symbolism the ritual of deity, and the way of the salvation, it is pictorially preserved in its works. The methods of deity are demonstrated in its temples and under the all-seeing eye, and the work can go forward that way. It is far more an occult organization than can be realized. And it is intended to be the training school for the coming advanced occultists. 
In its ceremonies lies hidden the wielding of the forces connected with the growth and the life of kingdoms of nature and the unfoldment of the divine aspects of man. Now, that's really revealing, and I think that's just awesome that he was able to make that connection because it just all makes sense because they do all have so many similarities and similar goals. Now, Foster Bailey was Alice Bailey's husband. If you don't know, they started or uh, at least been credited with starting uh, Lucifer Publishing, which was actually uh, in an office in the United Nations, and they got flack on that. Uh, after a while, so they changed it to uh, Lucius Trust. But uh, as far as I know, at least up until just a little while back, they still uh, ran the United Nations Library there, uh, and they have definite connections. So just look up uh, Lucius Trust and look for yourself. You can find it. It's really easy. Uh, but her uh, her husband was Foster Bailey, and he, was, uh, he wrote a book about uh, Freemasonry called The Spirit of Masonry, and you can find that on uh, archive.org. You can find that for free, so check that out. But obviously, they were pretty close to the lodge. It says here, Foster Bailey, the husband of Alice, was also involved with Freemasonry and even wrote a book on the organization entitled The Spirit of Masonry. In that book appears the text of a lecture delivered by Foster Bailey to a lodge in New Jersey. Also appearing in the book is the text of an article by Alice Bailey, first published in the Master Mason magazine. Now, Cog goes on to say, As I continued my investigation, I learned that Bailey's forerunners, Madame Blavatsky, the founder of the Theosophical Society, as well as her successor, Annie Besant, were both heavily involved with Freemasonry. Cardinal Carol... Rodriguez, Archbishop of Santiago, Chile, in his book, The Mystery of Freemasonry Unveiled, examines these relationships, and he says this, Madame Blavatsky, the promoter of the founder of Theosophy in Europe, was also a member of the Masonic Lodges. Her successor, Annie Bizant, president of the Theosophical Society in 1911, was vice president. Um, let's see here. And he makes a note here. He says, Historically, with the exception of the Grand Orient Lodge, the Masonic Order had been exclusively male. However, in 1893, the French's Lodge, Free Thinkers, reversed the trend by adding the special feature of admitting women. This lodge became known as the Great X Symbolic Lodge of France, or Lodge of Human Rights, and was the beginning of what is today known as co-masonry or adoptive masonry. This lodge is headquartered in Paris and has hundreds of affiliated lodges throughout Europe and the Americas. Uh, okay, and the cardinal goes on to say, the inner circle of a theosophical society known as the esoteric section, or rather the Eastern School of Theosophy, usually refers to as, or usually refers to itself as ES, and is in reality a secret society consisting in its turn of three further circles, the innermost composed of the Mahatmas, or Masters of the White Lodge, the second of the accepted pupils or initiates, and the third of the learners or ordinary members. The ES and co-masonry thus compose two secret societies within the open door controlled by people who are frequently members of both. He goes on to say, he summarizes his research on co-masonry like this. It is understood the, the theosophical doctrines 
on the nature of God and the soul and the relationship between God and the soul are the same doctrines as taught in Masonry. It is enough to read the books dealing with the history of theosophy to see that each theosophical center is founded almost without a doubt by members of a Masonic lodge. I heard one Mason writer on a show, and I forget his name. His first name is P.D. Anyway, uh, he talks about, like, psychedelics and masonry. He kind of tries to link all that together. But he was saying that at the beginning of these different levels of Freemasonry, when they were still brick masons, so if they were a master mason, that gave them the ability to go into other lands, other towns, the next town over, whatever, and build. And so they could go and make money in other towns. But the Masons below them, the Masons who were just starting were in the first or second degree, were not allowed to do that. So it was kind of a way of building up to a Master Mason to be able to make more money and be able to travel and whatnot. So I just thought that was kind of interesting. interesting. I'd never heard that before. So Cuddy goes on to say, There were three grades of initiates, apprentices, fellow workmen, and masters. Their meetings were opened by religious ceremonies, not sectarian, but recognizing deity as the grand architect of the universe. The earliest known reference to God the Creator as the architect of the universe is in Plato's Timaeus. The ritual comprised and taught certain religious ceremonies, a knowledge of the obligations and duties imposed upon the initiate, a knowledge of certain symbolism and secret modes of recognition, and the oath of its inviability. The fellow craft was also instructed in the use of the implements of masonry. Subsequently, the colleges were known as guilds between 312 and 285 BC. The Appian Way was constructed by the colleges or fraternities, as they are now often called. They also erected in Paris two new temples, one to Isis and one to Mithra. In the first century AD, particular attention was paid to teaching the Egyptian mysteries in the colleges which erected the Roman Colosseum beginning in AD 70. Therefore, while today's speculative masonry, modern masonry, beginning in the early 18th century, cannot legitimately say that it can trace its origins step by step back through time, it is fair to say that certain of its symbols, rituals, and teachings are based upon an historical tradition that dates back to ancient times and the ancient mystery religions, the religion of the Aryan race in the Vedas. In addition to the Rosicrucians and Gnosticism, along with a fundamental belief in a non-sectarianism. Now, I'll stop right there with Dr. Cuddy for a few minutes because he then gets into the history of world order and world government and where it all came from and how the Masons play into it. And he makes all these historical references from different societies, different leaders, different writers early on who are pushing for this world government, which really does fit in with the Masons because they talk about the brotherhood of man. And then you they connect to the new age, which is really all about us all being one and about, about oneness and connection and all that, which has this hippy-dippy, lovey thing about it, which is awesome and great. And, you know, as I would say, you know, that would be awesome and fantastic, wonderful if we could do that and make this utopia. But that's just not meant to be. It's never going to happen. And there are a lot of people who are trying to make that happen, even if they have to kill and destroy countless people to try and make that happen. And that's a scary thing. 
But that's kind of getting on a different subject. So we read that. Now I'm going to read you a little bit from Masons and what they think and how they think of their society, their fraternity. So there's a guy named C.W. Leadbeater, and he's a prolific Masonic writer, and he writes about Gnosticism and stuff like that. And he said in his book, Freemasonry and its Ancient Mystic Rites, Freemason, spelled P-H-R-E-E-M-E-S-S-E-N, means son of fire and light. He goes on to say that the god Ptah was the master architect of the universe, the creative force who is the fire of God. And I believe it's Ptah and his likeness is what the Grammys are based on, the little Grammy guy, or the Oscars. I'm sorry, I think it's the Oscars. You guys can look that up. I know I've posted that on my Instagram before. But if you look at the god Ptah and then you look at the little Oscar award, it looks almost identical in shape and very similar there. The most widely encountered definition of Freemasonry describes itself as a system of morality veiled in allegory and illustrated by symbols. The Andersonian legend stated that Freemasonry dates back to biblical times and the stories and people from those cultures. So you have this series of different constitutions and legends, and the Andersonian one, I believe, is the first one that really came about and was detailed. Later, an Englishman by the name of Michael Ramsay put forth the 1717 oration where he takes Freemasonry's origins back to the Knights Templars and the mystery religions of Persia, Egypt, and the Mediterranean area. So before that, the Andersonian legend taught that Masonry dates back to biblical times, to the biblical story, and that's all it was. And then later on in 1717, Michael Ramsey brings in this Egyptian, Persian, Mediterranean vibe to it. And Albert Mackey's history, he actually says in there that that is not true, that it had nothing to do with the Egyptian rites, the Egyptian story and whatnot. But anyway, Lee Bitter goes on to say, there are four types of Masonic schools, the anthropological, the authentic, the mystical, and co-Masonry. And co-Masonry is what uh, Annie Besant and Blavatsky belong to, and we think Alice Bailey as well. He says that in the second and third degrees, there are also hidden mysteries to those who seek them. And he kind of expounds on that in the book and talks about how only certain initiates will be able to recognize those mysteries within the degrees that they don't outright teach. And that kind of gets into what Albert Pike and others have said. They call the masses who don't understand these mysteries in this esoteric language and symbolism and numbers, they call them profane. So every initiate learns differently. They may go farther they may not go very far and just quit. It's all a little bit different concerning the people who join it. And it's, like I said at the start of the show, everyone does a little something different with the knowledge that he seeks. If you're bent towards evil, these secret societies that teach you how to communicate in a hidden manner, you can really use that kind of stuff in an evil way, and it can go a long way. And we have seen that in history. A lot of leaders have used these secretive languages and communication skills to rule over the people. He says there are several different levels depending on how an individual sees the degrees. There's also red, 
black, and white masonry. Red, or rosy cross, Rosicrucian, was devoted to the knowledge of good. Black masonry was 19 through 30 degrees and devoted to the knowledge of evil. White masonry, the candidate learns that the underlying justice of Amun-Ra, who stands behind him, is good and evil alike. And that's where you get the whole duality, which, again, duality, and I talk about this, and it always pisses people off, but there is the hippy-dippy you know, view of duality and this natural view of everything as an opposite. But when people take it too far or take it to the dark side and they use these different teachings for evil, then it ends up being that there is no such thing as good or evil. And I think we have some quotes about that later on. He mentions Hermes Trismegistus, the thrice god, three. He says Hermes was actually derived from three different characters. One was Enoch from the Bible. One was Thoth and the other was Hermes. Now, here's something interesting. Uh, one of the things I've noticed from studying a lot of this is there's a pretty big difference in what some Masons believe over others as far as their legends go. They don't all agree on the same exact things, and maybe that comes from these different legends, like I mentioned the Andersonian legend, the Ramsay legend. But uh, the Freemasons call themselves the Sons of the Widow. They say that Isis is the widow from the myth of, you know, the Egyptian myth of where Osiris is killed by his brother Set and Horus and Isis are left behind for a time. So at that moment, Isis became a widow. And so the Freemasons become the widow's son. So you'll see that quite a bit. The Masons in that sense represent Horus, the child of Osiris and Isis. Now that is one story. But Max Heindel, who is a Rosicrucian, and I've read from his book Freemasonry and Catholicism several times, and he says that Eve is the widow from when Samael, on behalf of Lucifer, or the Lucifer spirits, impregnated Eve, and Jehovah banished Samael from the garden. Because, see, some of those guys think that Cain was not the son of Adam, he was the son of, some say Lucifer, but some say Samael, another angel. So at that point, in that legend, the Freemasons represent Cain, who was, you know, the son of those two and kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Originally, the Freemasons said that the two pillars, Jachin or Jachin and Boaz, were hidden by Lamech's sons to preserve the knowledge of the seven liberal arts or sacred sciences before the deluge, the flood, one pillar that is said to have the seven sacred sciences and the other was said to have a map to the nine vaults in which either Enoch or Hermes, depending on which legend you believe, had made these tablets with the knowledge hidden somewhere under the pyramids. The legend now has changed in modern times to Enoch hiding the pillars, which Albert Mackey did not agree with. And again, Albert Mackey is the premier historian for Freemasonry. He said the entire Enoch story as it relates to Freemasonry is completely bogus. Some also call the infamous two pillars, the pillars of Enoch, which may be confused with the Hebrew legend of different or a singular pillar with the information also carved into it. Most Freemasons of modern day do not know that there were actually two Enochs in the Bible. 
And you can find that in the table of nations, which documented all the people in the Bible early on. So that two Enochs part is something that you never really hear about, and the two Enochs often get confused with one another, but they were several generations apart. In one of the early important Freemasonry documents called the Cook MS, or the Cook Manuscript, they refer to Enoch, son of Cain, and not the seventh-born Enoch, which, according to the Table of Nations, was the son of Adam and Eve's third child, Seth. Now, this next part I've mentioned before, but I want you to check this out again because I think it's very important because it sets forth kind of the window. You can kind of uh, see why many believe there is a battle for good and evil on the earth. And we, uh, many of us, especially you guys that listen to this show, know that's true. But this is from a Rosicrucian Freemasonry perspective. The Freemason mythos from Max Heindel says the earthly battle the origins of this battle, are between the sons of Eve, Cain, whose descendants represent fire, the Lucifer spirits, and are the maker and warrior class, and Seth, the third-born son, whose descendants represent water, Jehovah, and the priestly and shepherd class. This is another dualistic view, and they see the two bloodlines in essence as representing Freemasons versus Christianity as a whole who Heindel sees as having somewhat of a symbiotic relationship, but he also adds that he sides with Freemasonry and Christianity must and will be defeated in the end to create their world utopia. Now, according to physicist author Robert Lomas, it is said that when Moses saw the burning bush, the fire was in the form of a fiery triangle. By the way, he is a Freemason as well. I've heard him in several interviews talk about it. He also says the triangle pointing upwards represents the king with his power based in materialism. The triangle points towards the heavens for inspiration. The triangle pointing downwards represents the power of the priest with his base in heaven. The downward point helps guide the king. When the two come together, reconciliation of the opposites, much like the square and compass of Freemasonry. It represents the temporal power of the king and the spiritual power of the church coming together. The two must keep this balance in order for the nation or nations to be governed well, as above, so below, duality. The lore of rebuilding the king Solomon's temple signifies the soul of a mason, the philosopher's stone. You are polishing your stone as you learn more and become a better person. Can you dig it? The initiate begins with a rough ashlar stone and begins to smooth it day by day until it shines with illumination. The alchemical process of turning base minerals into gold. Apotheosis. They also call the stone when it's completely unfinished and raw prima materia. In alchemy and philosophy, prima materia or materia prima or first matter, is the ubiquitous starting material required for the alchemical magnum opus and the creation of the philosopher's stone. Originally, alchemy was the ability to colorize metals for the worship and representation of certain gods. So apotheosis becoming your own god, as the serpent said to Eve in the garden, eat of this fruit and you will become like God. Not much is actually known about the design of the true Temple of Solomon. According to Mackey, the temple idea came from a Hallowell manuscript constitution from the 14th century where a poem about a Christian church said, And ye temples of great honor. It's really, really kind of simple 
And I don't know, it just seems strange to me that they derived so much about Solomon's temple out of that one line. But that's Mackey. And like I said, he's the man, as far as history goes, for Freemasonry. Albert Mackey makes the case that the Invisible College, or the Royal Society, was not created by Freemasons, although people like Robert Lemos says it very much was. Only that some members happened to be Masons, but it was just a book club for intellectuals to discuss science. Robert Lomas and others make the case that it was indeed created and ran by Freemasons. He goes on to say that there was a split with English Freemasonry where one side were Jacobites, akin to modern-day communists, and supported the Stuarts, the House of Stuart, and the other group supported the Hanovers. And that kind of relates back to non-Christians versus all of Christianity, the Illuminati versus the church type thing. And this is, again, I'm paraphrasing a lot of information that I have read because it's so much. I don't want to continue to quote word for word from these different authors. But why do they call it the Blue Lodge? Now, the Blue Lodge is the first three degrees and the original temple and teachings of Freemasons where they had the three degrees only before the Scottish Rite and the York Rite and all the spinoffs. So why do they call it the Blue Lodge? Well, according to Coyle's Masonic Encyclopedia, there may be a number of reasons why symbolic lodges are called blue lodges. Since the ancient times, the color blue has been associated with immortality, eternity, and fidelity. References to the color blue in the Bible emphasize the special place blue has as a color, symbolizing goodness and mortality. The Druids also honored the blue color, while the ancient Egyptians used the color to represent Amun-Ra, one of their most important gods. The ancient Babylonians associated the color blue with the gods. In medieval times, Christians saw blue as the symbol of perfection and hope, and as well as immortality and fidelity. It is not known when the blue first came to be associated with Freemasonry, although some historians think that initially the color was used in craft masonry to represent the sky. Today, blue for Masons symbolizes brotherhood and symbolizes the fact that Masons should seek out virtues as extensive as the blue dome of heaven. Albert Mackey's Encyclopedia of Freemasonry, Under Blue, has further light to share. He says blue is emphatically the color of Masonry. It is the appropriate tincture of the ancient craft degrees. The Hebrew word for blue when referring to the spiritual matters is tekhelet, derived from a root word meaning perfection. And they have the rite of perfection in higher degree Scottish Rite Masonry. And also Adam Weishaupt's first incarnation of the Bavarian Illuminati was called the Perfectibilists. Now, as an aside, there are certain terms that actually came out of Freemasonry, like the term blackballed. What that represented in Freemasonry, or still does represent, is when a new guy comes into the lodge and wants to be in that lodge, all the other guys have to vote yay or nay. And so if they want him to be in the lodge, which is probably the norm, they drop a white ball into a slot. But if they don't want the guy in, say somebody maybe knows this guy and has something personal against him or whatever, then they drop a black ball into the slot. And there you get the term blackballed. But you also get on the square or on the level. Is this guy on the level? That's where it comes from. It comes from Freemasonry. Just a little interesting tidbit. See there, we've talked almost 30 minutes, and it's just flown by, and we've barely scratched the surface. 
All right, guys, I want to take the time to thank my podcasting family over at alternatecurrentradio.com. Be sure and get over there and check out all their fine music and talk shows. That is alternatecurrentradio.com. And be sure and tell Hesher and Spore, the odd man, says hello. Let's get right to it and let's start peeling back the onion and kind of taking this apart and deconstructing it, shall we? Let's do it. So you've probably heard me and others talk about how secret societies and in particular Freemasonry, they can communicate without others knowing it. They have secret ways of communicating, whether that be through signs and symbols, hand movements, hand signals. I think they call them call signs. Also, though, there are numerous meanings to a lot of the words that they use. And some of the words are just everyday words that we would use that have different meanings to them. Some words have multiple meanings. And we see that in the regular world sometimes, but it's especially prevalent in Freemasonry. And so I was reading in a book that I have talked about in this Freemasonry series before. It is by C.W. Leadbeater. It's called Freemasonry and its Ancient Mystic Rites. And there's a section in there. He talks about the mystery language. And he says, Besides the teaching upon the life after death, which was elaborated by countless stories of imaginary individuals showing the results in the astral plane after death of certain courses of action during life, a fine course of education was also given to the initiates of the first degree, embracing what Masons term the seven liberal arts, in sciences, grammar, logic, rhetoric, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. By grammar, the Egyptians meant the sacred hieroglyphic writing of the priests, which was taught to all initiates of the mysteries, but it also signified a kind of secret language, a way of speaking peculiar to the priesthood. In the secret language of the mysteries, it was not so much that the different words were used as that the familiar words had different meanings. Those who have studied the translations of the Egyptian texts will have noticed how widely these vary in the versions of the different scholars. I have sometimes wondered whether this is in any way due to that system of double meanings. In ancient Egypt, we were able to talk about the secrets of the inner life before crowds of people without letting them know what we meant. And we had quite a large vocabulary of such significant words so that an entire conversation could be conducted seemingly about ordinary, everyday affairs, but in reality upon the secrets of the mysteries. Much instruction was given in this way. A lecture or an address might be delivered publicly by one of the priests, bearing two entirely distinct meanings, the one ethical and intended for helping the people of who were not initiated, and the other esoteric for the students of the mysteries. The legend that masonry possesses a universal language known only to the brethren may be an echo of tradition about this ancient and secret tongue. This secret tongue of the initiates was also used in inscriptions and in the hieroglyphic wall paintings and papyri. Many of these inscriptions telling of the victories of some great pharaoh could be read in a hidden sense, and they then convened spiritual instruction to those who had learnt the real meaning. This is certainly true of the Book of the Dead, which when translated into English by modern scholars, seems often unintelligible and even grotesque. 
Yet the interpretation of it taught in the mysteries, those same texts were full of inner illumination and gave much information about the realities of life and death. It is perhaps necessary to repeat that in all this, there was no desire on the part of the priests to mislead people. Their idea was simply to give instruction graded to suit the needs of the hearer and to guard important secrets from those who were not prepared to receive them. It was for the same reason that the interior arrangements of the Great Pyramid were confused. Some of the passages were not used at all in the scheme of the initiation, the real passage having been obtainable in quite another way. This policy was dictated by wisdom. Would it not be well if in the present day we could see and devise some means by which new discoveries in science, which are now used for injury and destruction, could be preserved solely for the use of people who would be certain to employ them for the public good. And from that, I would just say that, you know, I've talked about before how a lot of Freemasonry teachings are good, yet they do teach men how to communicate in secret, how to do things in a hidden way. And if you are an evil person, this does allow you to use these great mysteries that you learn for bad, evil purposes. Now, I go back to him talking about giving speeches in Egypt that sounded like a normal speech, but they were actually twofold. One was straightforward, and it was the exoteric, and the other was the esoteric that was meant for the initiates to understand. And it just makes me wonder if we have seen those type of things in modern politics and sports, art, music. I'm sure we have, and I think that we should start paying attention to that from now on. I'll go to Morals and Dogma for a little bit more on this by Albert Pike, of course. He says, The people will always mock at things easy to be misunderstood. It must needs have imposters. A spirit, he said, that loves wisdom and contemplates the truth close at hand is forced to disguise it, to induce the multitudes to accept it. Fictions are necessary to the people, and the truth becomes deadly to those who are not strong enough to contemplate it in all its brilliance. If the sacerdotal laws allowed to the reservation of judgments and the allegory of words, I would accept the proposed dignity on condition that I might be a philosopher at home and abroad a narrator of apologues and parables. In fact, what can there be in common between the vile multitude and sublime wisdom? The truth must be kept in secret, and the masses need a teaching proportion to their imperfect reason. Moral disorders produce physical ugliness, and in some sort realize those frightful faces which tradition assigns to demons. A couple pages onward, he says, Masonry, like all the religions, all the mysteries, hermeticism, and alchemy, conceals its secrets from all except the adepts and sages or the elect, and uses the false explanations and misinterpretations of its symbols to mislead those who deserve only to be misled, to conceal the truth which it calls light from them, and to draw them away from it. Truth is not for those who are unworthy or unable to receive it or would pervert it. So God himself incapacitates many men by color blindness to distinguish colors and leads the masses away from the highest truth 
giving them the power to obtain only so much of it as it is profitable to them to know. Every age has had a religion suited to its capacity. So on to a different subject. I was looking through the History of Freemasonry by Albert Mackey, which I've talked about in the other two episodes on Freemasonry. And Mackey being the premier historian for Freemasonry, uh, he has some interesting stuff to say. He's talking about the temple legend. So it's in that section there. And he says, before concluding this subject, it will be necessary to refer to the name of the builder chief of the temple and whose name has undergone that corruption in all the manuscripts to which all proper names have been subjected in those documents. Of course, it is known from the testimony of Scripture that the real name and title of this person, as used in reference to King Solomon and himself, was Hiram Abiff. This Hebrew appellative is found for the first time in Masonic documents in Anderson's Constitutions and in the Kraus MS, both being of the date of the early part of the 18th century. Previous to that period, we find him variously called in all the old manuscripts from the Dowland in 1550 to the Alnwick in 1701, Amon, A-M-A-N, Amon, A-M-O-N, Anon, A-Y-N-O-N-E, Anon, A-Y-N-O-N, Anon, A-N-O-N, A-J-U-O-N. Now, of what word are these a corruption? The Cook MS does not give any name, but only says that the king's son of Tyre was Solomon's master mason. All other succeeding manuscripts, without exception, admit this relation. Thus, the Dowland, in which it is followed by all others, say that King Hiram had a son that was called Anon, and that he was a master of geometry and was a chief master of all of Solomon's masons. The idea thus established that this man was of royal dignity, the son of a king, and that he was also a ruler of the craft. Now, I thought that was pretty interesting because, of course, QAnon. Maybe it just stands for anonymous, right? But that is pretty interesting that he would be such an important figure in Freemasonry which just adds to the mystery of QAnon and if there really is a QAnon and who is behind it. So, I don't know. I ran across that. I had to share it with you guys. And many of you have probably seen me. I posted that picture from that page on my Instagram. But if you haven't seen it, you can go check it out on there. I'm beginning to see more and more there being a new age kind of slant, kind of vibe to QAnon. I know there's a couple books written about it that has that slant. I'm seeing videos on YouTube about it. Uh, it kind of falls in line with this great white brotherhood and these kind of the theosophy type of deal where there's these adepts, these great sages. And I've even seen a couple of videos that kind of lean towards, or not kind of lean towards, but basically say that Trump is one of those adepts, but he's a living adept to come here to help us. And that kind of jives with some of the Hindu legends. You know, they think that there's these 10 adepts, or I forget exactly what they call them, uh, and that they will be reincarnated and 
they come back to help people when they fall in, like when the world has fallen in chaos. Uh, and I think that they believe that nine of them have already happened and only one is left, if I'm not mistaken. I've read that in uh, uh, Manly P. Hall's book on reincarnation. It's been a long time, but uh, I just thought that I would uh, share that with you guys because it's, it's pretty interesting and uh, kind of wild at the same time. Now, this is just something I wanted to add into this episode, and it's kind of one of those things would be much better if it was visual, but I think that I can quickly just describe it, and uh, maybe you guys will start recognizing it when you see it. You talk about the five points of fellowship in Freemasonry, and how they greet one another, showing the five points of fellowship. Well, you'll see politicians, especially world leaders from different countries greeting one another with a peculiar type of hug. And some of you might have noticed, hey, that hug looks a little bit different than the way normal people would hug, you know, but um, this is the way they do it. It is foot to foot, knee to knee, breast to breast, hand to back, and mouth to ear. That is how they do it. I repeat that. They go foot to foot, knee to knee, breast to breast, hand to back, and mouth to ear. So to expound on that a little bit, I'm going to read from John J. Robeson's Born in Blood, where he explains the five points of fellowship a little better. Stepping back, the worshipful master explains that the five points of fellowship are foot to foot, to indicate that a master mason will go out of his way on foot, if necessary, to assist a worthy brother. Knee to knee, as a reminder that in his prayers to the Almighty, the master mason remembers his brother's welfare as well as his own. Breast to breast, as a pledge that each master mason will keep in his own breast any secrets of a brother when given to him, as such, murder and treason accepted. Hand to back, because a master mason will always be ready to reach out his hand to support a brother and to defend his character and reputation behind his back, as well as his face and mouth to ear, because a master mason will always endeavor to caution and to give good advice to an erring brother in the most friendly manner, pointing out his faults and giving him timely counsel so that he may ward off approaching danger. So my advice is next time you see a couple of world leaders or very important political figures hugging, just pay attention to that and see if you think that they are giving one another the five points of fellowship signs. You know that they say the Mason is always traveling. He's a traveling man, right? Like the um, episode I did called, Are You a Traveling Man? And... They say that the Mason is always traveling from the west towards the east. Now, why is that? That's because he's traveling towards the light and the sun rises in the east. So it is said that he is on a journey and is always traveling towards the light. Just a little thing I thought I'd throw in there if you don't know about that. You know, I've heard it said by Masons that the Great Pyramid without the capstone symbolizes 
us. It symbolizes the man and his body is a temple. And that not having the capstone means that the temple is unfinished and we are an unfinished temple. And I've heard them also say that Solomon's temple also symbolizes the Great Pyramid and the unfinished temple of Solomon. It's really interesting because one thing I've learned from doing all of these different uh, shows that have Freemasonry as the subject is that there are so many different legends. And it's taught me that you can make up so many different things to symbolize other things or to go along with them. Pretty much the sky is the limit as far as making up allegories and saying, well, this means this and this means that. It really boils down to how talented you are, how how clever you are, and really your imagination. And I'm reminded of people like Jordan Maxwell, who I've always said is right about a lot of things, but also he takes a lot of liberties with words and etymologies. And just because a certain word may sound similar, even though they are different languages, doesn't necessarily mean they have the same roots or the same root meanings. That's not the way etymology works. And I think that a more current uh, a more current sample of that would be Bishop Larry Gators, whom I find fascinating. But the more I get to listening to this guy, I'm a bit more cautious of him because I think he is just drawing conclusions in, in, in drawing uh, lines when there isn't anything. Not always, of course, but I think he's doing that. So I'm reading this book by... W.L. Wilmshurst called The Meaning of Masonry. Apparently, it's a pretty important book. He says this one little section, he's talking about the great architect, and he says his plan of rebuilding the temple of fallen humanity and of initiating, advancing other men to a participation in the same great work. This evolution, the evolution of man into superman, was always the purpose of the ancient mysteries, and the real purpose of modern masonry is not social and charitable purposes to which so much attention is paid, but the expediting of the spiritual evolution of those who aspire to perfect to perfect their own nature and transform it into a more godlike quality. Also in this book, he talks quite a bit about building the perfect cube. And that means when you first become a mason, you're an entered apprentice. You're described as a rough Ashler stone, a piece of rough stone. And over time, as you learn more, you build more knowledge, then you become a cube, a smooth stone, or some say the philosopher's stone. Some say you reach apotheosis and become your own god once you become a master mason. So the cube, the perfect cube, as W.L. Wilmshurst describes it as what you become. And I can't help but think of the black cube of Saturn. Then you also have to think about, or at least I do, because I just did a podcast about them, BlackRock, the most powerful investment banking firm in the world right now. Then there's subsidiary Blackstone, 
And I think about Black Cube, the institution that consists of former Mossad guys and the things that they might be doing. So I would think that if you become a cube, a smooth, perfected cube, a perfectibilist, uh, and then you have the name Black in front of it, that would almost have to mean that you were working in the opposite of light. Now, Masons are supposed to be light workers, brothers of light, brothers of fire, of Ptah. So does that mean that this is dark magic? Does that mean that they're working with dark magic? I don't know. You have to be the judge. You look into it. I think it's very mysterious and uh, worth looking into and worth thinking about. But I just want to throw that part out there while we're talking about this perfect cube. I'll read a piece here from the book where he talks about that perfect cube. He says, now as these facts are the basis upon which these lectures proceed, let me at the outset make my first point by stating that as the progress in the craft of every brother admitted into his ranks is by gradual successive stages, in like manner, the understanding of the Masonic system and doctrine is also a matter of gradual development. Stated in the simplest terms possible, the theory of Masonic progress is that every member admitted to the order enters in a state of darkness and ignorance as of what the Masons teach, and that later on he is supposed to be brought to light and knowledge. Putting it together in our terms, he enters the craft symbolically as a rough ashlar, and it is his business so to develop both his character and his understanding so that ultimately, in virtue of what he has learned and practiced, he may be as an unfinished and perfect cube. Now, he mentions that several times. And uh, actually, the Illuminati watcher, Isaac Weishaupt, he had posted some pictures of a cube. I think it was in, if I remember correctly, it was in uh, St. Louis. He'd been there some time back, and he had taken pictures of these cubes all over the city, and I had sent him a message that this book actually has quite a bit about the perfect cube. And he actually gave me a shout out on his last uh, podcast and he does a great job. I think he's one of the best. So I really appreciated him doing that because he certainly didn't have to. And for a little bit more on the cube, you can't have a show on Freemasonry without mentioning Albert Pike, right? Well, from Morals and Dogma, he says this about the cube. The rough ashlar is the people, as a mass, rude and unorganized. The perfect ashlar, or cubicle stone, symbol of perfection, is the state, the rulers deriving their powers from the consent of the governed, the constitution and the laws speaking the will of the people, the government, harmonious, symmetrical, efficient, its powers properly distributed and duly adjusted in equilibrium. Well, that surely doesn't sound anything like our government. He goes on to say, If we delineate a cube on a plane surface, we have visible three faces and nine external lines drawn between seven points. The complete cube has three more faces making six, three more lines making twelve, and one more point making eight. As the number 12 includes the sacred numbers 3, 5, 7, 
and 3 times 3, or 9, and is produced by adding the sacred numbers 3 to 9, while its own two figures, 1, 2, the unit or monad, or duad, added together, make the same sacred number 3. It was called the perfect number, and the cube became the symbol of perfection, produced by force, acting by rule, hammered in accordance with lines measured by the gauge out of the rough ashlar. It is an appropriate symbol of the force of the people, expressed as the constitution and the law of the state, and of the state itself, three visible faces represent the three departments the executive, which executes the laws, the legislative, which makes the laws, the judiciary, which interprets the laws and applies and enforces them between man and man, between the state and citizens. The three invisible faces are liberty, equality, and fraternity, the threefold soul of the state, its vitality, spirit, and intellect. Now, Pike actually mentions the cube quite a few times in different passages in Morals and Dogma, but I thought I would check out Eliphas Levi because that is Pike's hero. You know, he plagiarized him, as we learned in one of our other episodes on Freemasonry. So in the history of magic, now I didn't find cube, but I did find cubic, and I found stone quite a few times, but... Here is the most significant passages I could find. Okay, for the rest were those who accused Christ of setting up a spurious cornerstone, acquainted themselves with the true one? Question mark. Had not the Jews in the days of the Pharisees lost the science of that which is at once the cornerstone, the cubic stone, the philosophical stone? In a word, the fundamental stone of the Kabbalistic temple, square at the base and triangular above, like the pyramids. By impeaching Jesus as an innovator, did they not proclaim that they themselves had forgotten antiquity? Was not that light which Abraham saw and rejoiced extinguished for the unfaithful children of Moses? And was it not recovered by Jesus, who made it shine with a new splendor? To be quite certain on the subject, the gospel and the apocalypse of St. John must be compared with the mysterious doctrines of the Sefer Yetzira and the Zohar. It will then be realized that Christianity, so far from being a heresy in Israel, was the true orthodox tradition of Jews, while it was the scribes and the Pharisees who were sectarians. Furthermore, Christian orthodoxy is proved by the consent of the world at large and by the suspension of the sovereign priesthood, together with the perpetual sacrifice in Israel, the two indisputable marks of a true religion. Judaism, a temple without a high priest and without a sacrifice, survives only as a dissident persuasion. Certain persons are still Jews, but the temple and the altar are Christian. Well, he describes the stone a little bit different. He basically describes a pyramid or a triangle shape, but I thought that was interesting. And there's some other parts in there where he mentions the philosopher's stone. There's one part where towards the end he's saying that most people would not believe him, but the stone, if ever found, would heal all illnesses. Uh, it would just be this stone, this like magnificent 
miraculous stone that would have all these different usages. So I thought I'd just throw that in there just because, hey, you know, all this stuff is connected in some way. I want to get to the heart of the truth. He says plainly, the whole body of the royal and sacerdotal art was hidden so carefully centuries since in the high degrees as that it is even yet impossible to solve many of the enigmas which they contain. It is well enough for the mass of those called Masons to imagine that all is contained in the blue degrees and whose attempts to undeceive them will labor in vain and without any true reward violate his obligations as an adept. Masonry is the veritable sphinx buried to the head in the sands heaped round it by the ages. Well, there you have the proof that that part is true anyway, that they do hide things from the lower degrees, and that only makes sense. And many people say that those last three to four degrees, depending if you get chosen as a 33rd, that really do, that's when they reveal the more hidden occult meaning and kind of tell you, a lot of these things we've been saying, well, that's not true. This is the real deal right here. So anyway, another note about the most famous Albert Pike quote, and many of you guys are familiar with this one too. This is the other famous Lucifer quote, and many of you will know that quote, but I want to read just a little bit before the quote because it's very important to take everything into context you know, people pick out a certain Bible quote and they can twist it any way they want if you don't know the context. They can pick out any little news piece, anything, and take it out of context and twist it. And like I said, my main concern is finding out history and finding out the truth, even if I don't like it. So let's look at the paragraph before the famous quote, or maybe two paragraphs before. Let's see. He's talking about a book called The Apocalypse. Now, I've read more about that in other books about Freemasonry, and apparently this was a very rare book about the occult. He says, The Apocalypse, that sublime, cabalistic, and prophetic summary of all the occult figures, divides its images into three septenaries. That's three sevens. After each of these, there is silence in heaven. There are seven seals to be opened, that is to say, seven mysteries to know and seven difficulties to overcome. Seven trumpets to sound and seven cups to empty. And now here's the quote. The apocalypse is, to those who receive the 19th degree, the apotheosis of that sublime faith which aspires to God alone and despises all the pomps and works of Lucifer. Understand it says despises all the pomps and works of Lucifer. Lucifer, the light bearer, strange and mysterious name to give to the spirit of darkness, Lucifer, the son of the morning, is it he who bears the light and with its splendors intolerable, blinds feeble, sensual, or selfish souls? Question mark. Doubt it not, for traditions are full of divine revelations and inspirations, and inspiration is not of one age nor of one creed. Plato and Philo also were inspired. And then he says, the apocalypse indeed is a book as obscure as the Zohar. And he goes on to talk about that book and how it's written hieroglyphically with numbers and images. So I think it's important to 
actually look at what he said instead of jump to a conclusion because he says Lucifer in there, which I used to do. I've always done that until recently when I realized, wait a minute, let's take this into context. So that aside, that quote, right? That was plagiarized from the occult writer Eliphas Levi from his book, The History of Magic. And I've got that right here, and I'm going to read it to you. Now, I want to also take this quote from Eliphas Levi into some kind of context. Like I said, it's on page 36 from The History of Magic. He says, Scientifically probable hypotheses are one and all the last half-lights or shadows of science. Faith begins where reason falls exhausted. Beyond human reason, there is that reason which is divine. For my weakness, a supreme absurdity, but an infinite absurdity which confounds me and in which I believe. The good alone is infinite, evil is not, and hence if God be the eternal object of faith, then the devil belongs to science. In which of the Catholic creeds is there any question concerning him? Would it not be blasphemy to say that we believe in him? In Holy Scripture he is named but not defined. Genesis makes no allusion to a reputed revolt of angels. It ascribes the fall of Adam to the serpent as to the most subtle of the dangerous of living beings. We are acquainted with Christian tradition on this subject, but if that tradition is explicable by one of the greatest and most diffused allegories of science, what can such solution signify to the faith which aspires only to God, which despises, here we go, which despises the pomps and the works of Lucifer, question mark. Lucifer, light bearer. How strange a name attributed to the spirit of darkness. Is it he who carries the light and yet blinds feeble souls? The answer is yes, unquestionably, for traditions are full of divine disclosures and inspirations. Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light, says St. Paul, and Christ himself said, I beheld Satan as lightning falling from heaven. Also, the prophet Isaiah says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Then Lucifer is then a fallen star, a meteor, which is on fire always, and which burns when it enlightens no longer. But is this Lucifer a person or a force, an angel or a strayed thunderbolt? Tradition supposes that it is an angel, but the psalmist says, who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a flaming fire. And we could all, you know, we could go deeper into that. But you see that he says, which despises the pomps and works of Lucifer, Lucifer the light bearer. How strange a name attributed to the spirit of darkness. Is it he who carries the light and yet blinds feeble souls? The answer is yes, unquestionably. For traditions are full of divine disclosures and inspirations. So there you have it. He absolutely plagiarized Eliphas Levi. And if you look into Albert Pike and plagiarism, then you see that this is not the only instance. So if you didn't know about this, here you go. I thought it was pretty interesting. I know I've dragged the show out quite a bit, but I just keep finding more stuff that I want to add. And I want you to know it. So this is a fellow by the name of W.F. Brainerd at New London, Connecticut, before the Union Lodge. Now, granted, this was 1825, and that was a long time ago.
But if you think about how if the governments were filled with Freemasons who had sworn these solemn oaths to one another, and we know that quite a few of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were, in fact, Masons, and we know that other men in government have been Masons, then just listen to this and think about how it may pertain to our government and the people that rule behind the scenes even today. He says, what is Masonry now? It is powerful. It comprises men of rank, wealth, office, and talent, in power and out of power, and that in almost every place where power is of any importance. And it comprises, among other classes of the community, to the lowest and large numbers, active men united together and capable of being directed by the efforts of others so as to have the force of concert through the civilized world. They are distributed, too, with the means of knowing one another and the means of keeping secret and the means of cooperating in the desk, in the legislative hall, on the bench, in every gathering of business, in every party of pleasure, in every enterprise of government, in every domestic circle, in peace and in war, among enemies and friends, in one place as well as in another. So powerful indeed is at this time that it fears nothing from violence, either public or private, for it has every means to learn it in season to counteract, defeat, and punish it. It's pretty heavy, right? All right, guys, that cinches up this Oddcast episode. Thank you very much for taking the time to hang out with me. I hope you got something out of it. As always, take it with you and share it. Share the show. Tell somebody else about it. I want to get right to thanking my patrons. Thank you, KF, and thank you, Cole. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, that crazy bread man. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Ruckus, from the Daily Ruckus, from AlternateCurrentRadio.com, and from TNT Radio. Thank you for being a producer of the show, Ruckus. Thank you, No Evil Shall Fear. Thank you, Mark, from Hugh Satonic Live. Please check out all of Mark's content. Thank you, James. Thank you, Bill, for being a producer of the show. Thank you, John Brisson, for being a covert co-conspirator. Everyone get on over to Twitter and look at We've Read, and you will find John Brisson's content and his link tree and all of his work. You can find it there. Thank you to the Mighty Kilowatt. Thank you, Sir Tim of the Tunnels. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, David. And thank you, Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. You can also find Jack's shows on all your fine podcasting platforms as well as YouTube. I'll be seeing you guys soon. Cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys.